You have a premier air ambulance service flying a big twin-engine helicopter staffed with a competent pilot, a flight physician, and a flight nurse. The safety and organizational culture are about as good as it can possibly get, yet somehow we are left again with another fatal HEMS accident. And even worse, nobody, not the operator or the manufacturer or the engine manufacturer nor the NTSB seem to agree on the cause. Blame seems to be cast in all directions, but just like with all incidents, the truth, while difficult to admit sometimes, is usually found somewhere in the middle. The story of UW Health Med Flight coming up on this episode of The Dr. Medic. The operator at the time of this accident was Air Methods, who we have talked about several times on this channel. Air Methods is one of the largest air ambulance providers in the world with hundreds of bases in the United States and over 5,000 employees. This particular service was a hospital-based service where the aircraft operations were all run by Air Methods, who supplied the pilots, the aircraft, the mechanics, and the dispatchers. The medical crew, on the other hand, were all employed by the University of Wisconsin's hospital system, otherwise simply known as UW Health. Now, UW Health has a long history of serving the communities of central Wisconsin being established nearly 35 years ago. They place a high emphasis on raising the bar, staffing their helicopters with a flight physician and a critical care flight nurse, or even sometimes a respiratory therapist or other specialist. The flight nurses were mostly all full-time, with the flight physicians all being part-time and rotating between the UW Health Emergency Departments or their own private practices. They also spared no expense when it comes to their helicopters. They originally flew this ridiculously cool Aerospatial SA360 Dauphine, then moving to the Augusto 109E Powers, and then, at the time of the accident, investing heavily into brand new Eurocopter EC-135s, and now today, they almost exclusively fly the most up-to-date versions of the Airbus EC-145s. They also were one of the very few programs across the United States that operate IFR flights, and now they do instrument approaches to nearly 20 different hospitals across Wisconsin. Their aviation side of things was originally run through Imperial, who then merged into CJ Systems helicopters back in 1993. And for the next 15 years, MedFlight operated without any major incidents, and then CJ Systems was purchased by Air Methods over the span of a few months, with the final sale being completed in March of 2008, just two months prior to this accident. The aircraft in this accident was this 2007 Eurocopter EC-135T2+, which was powered by two Turbomeca Arius 2B2 turboshaft engines, each making 642 horsepower. The aircraft was almost brand new, with just 456 total hours on the airframe and the engines. There was a routine airworthiness check done the day of the accident with no anomalies, and a 400-hour inspection was completed just a few months earlier, also without any issues. This 135 had an awesome glass cockpit with a radar altimeter, but did not have a terrain awareness warning system, which it was not required to have at the time. Otherwise, 
otherwise known as TAWS or HTAWS. Now, just a quick recap from a previous video, radar altimeters are amazing tools and work by shooting radio waves down towards the ground directly beneath an aircraft and then receiving the signal back, which then they can calculate how far above the ground the aircraft is and it spits out a little number on their gauge. TAWS or HTAWS contain a very detailed database of all known obstacles, coordinates the aircraft's position by GPS, and then is able to alert the pilot to obstacles in terrain in front of the flying aircraft as opposed to just what is below the aircraft and provides both an audio and a visual alert if and when an obstacle is encountered in the direct pathway of the aircraft. In other words, HTAWS keeps aircraft, especially low-flying aircraft like medical helicopters, from flying directly into buildings, towers, and terrain like mountains and hills. The helicopter also was not equipped with a cockpit voice recorder nor a flight data recorder and did not have night vision goggle compatible lighting inside because they were not an NVG program at the time and neither were most programs across the country as NVGs were still kind of in their infancy in terms of medical helicopters in the United States. Now, sitting on the left side of the aircraft in the back was 37-year-old flight physician Dr. Darren Bean, who had worked as a physician for UW Health for six years, starting in 2002, and was also the medical director for the Madison Fire Department. On the right side of the aircraft was 53-year-old flight nurse Mark Coyne, who had been flying for MedFlight for 22 years and worked for UW Health for a total of 27 years. Mark was also a licensed EMT and worked part-time for over 20 years teaching EMT classes at the local community college. Now sitting up front on the right side was 39-year-old pilot Steve Lipperer. Steve held a commercial pilot certificate with single and multi-engine land, airplane, helicopter, instrument airplane, and instrument helicopter ratings. Steve actually got started as a mechanic and also held a mechanic certificate with airframe and power plant ratings. Now it seems a bit strange here, but the NTA SB was unable to locate Steve's pilot logbook and instead had to rely on Air Method's documentation for his flight hours. But Air Method's documentation does differ a bit from other documentation that the NTS report had, so there is a little bit of a discrepancy in the report related to Steve's overall hours. Air Method stated that Steve had a total of 4,003 hours with 2,741 of those in rotor wing and 121 hours on type in the EC-135. He had a total of 216 instrument hours with Air Method's first saying that Steve had received 2.7 hours of instrument time in the previous 12 months, but they later revised their claim and documented that Steve actually had less than three hours of instrument time over the preceding three and a half years with just 0.4 hours on instruments in the last 12 months, all of which was during a single 0.4 hour flight on May 17th, 2007. Now, like I said, Steve got started as a mechanic for CJ Systems back in 2001, where he worked his way up and became a pilot for MedFlight in 2005. Now, this next part is about his training and is quite important to the story. You see, during the few months of transition time from CJ Systems to Air Methods, all pilot training was completed under Air Methods certificate. Now, Steve did complete his initial indoctrination into the Air Methods world in January of 2008 and then completed more 
more specific training unique to the EC-135 over the next few months, with almost four hours of flight training in the 135 in the middle of March, and passed his Part 135 proficiency checks around the same time. But even though Steve was previously IFR rated, he did not receive an IFR proficiency check and therefore was not allowed to fly IFR flights, even though this was an established IFR program with IFR-capable aircraft. Air Methods would later go on to say that this was due to unsuitable weather conditions and that the IFR checks needed to be rescheduled for a later date. This will most definitely come back up later in this story. It is also important to note that even though the lacrosse area has some very unique geography and terrain, Pilot Steve had only flown in this area on two occasions, the first one being on March 7th of 2008 and the second one being during this accident flight. Because the weather issue for this flight is so contentious later on in the story, I'm just going to sum up the weather this way. There was a front coming across the state of Iowa, and IFR conditions prevailed all across southern Minnesota and northern Iowa, and all of the areas surrounding this front and the IFR areas were dotted with marginal VFR and VFR conditions. And the intended route of this flight, the accident site, and the destination were all located within the area of marginal VFR conditions. In other words, the weather was changing rapidly and can turn from VFR to IFR just about anywhere along the intended route. More on the weather later on in the story. Now, this accident took place on May 10th, 2008, just outside of La Crosse, Wisconsin, in the United States. A short side note is that the year 2008 was an absolute nightmare for everyone involved in helicopter EMS in the United States, as there were 12 EMS helicopter accidents, eight of them fatal, resulting in a staggering total of 29 fatalities in just that year alone. These accidents and events ultimately did end up triggering some serious safety recommendations from the NTSB to the FAA, many of which were actually followed. So while 2008 was a terrible year, it did lead to many of the safety requirements that we have today, such as HTAWS, night vision goggles, and the HEMS weather tool. But some of those recommendations that were made have simply fallen on deaf ears and have still never come to fruition, such as dual pilot configurations and the use of autopilot. I'm very curious what you guys think, especially the folks that are flying out there. Let me know in the comments below which safety recommendations you think are still lacking in the HEMS community. Anyway, Steve, Mark, and Darren received a flight request and lifted off from their home base at 2038 hours from UW Health Hospital in downtown Madison, Wisconsin, and head towards Prairie du Chien Memorial Hospital in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin to pick up a patient arriving at 2113 hours. They quickly get their patient and lift off at 2131 and head to Gunderson Lutheran Hospital in La Crosse, arriving about 2154. They drop their patient off pretty quickly and lift off again at 2209 and head towards La Crosse Regional Airport, located on French Island, right in the middle of the Mississippi River in La Crosse, Wisconsin. They refuel and take off again at 2234 hours, headed back to where they started just about two hours ago. Now, Air Methods was utilizing 
using GPS tracking that would update the position of the aircraft every three minutes, but for some reason, after they lifted off at 2234, there was no further GPS updates and it is unknown exactly what path, speed, or altitude the helicopter followed after that moment. But the guy who fueled the helicopter stated that the helicopter lifted and proceeded east-southeast and added that the visibility was fair with a low ceiling and moderate rain. Another witness who was located 4.2 miles east-southeast of La Crosse Airport reported hearing a helicopter fly over at about 22.30 while he was in a restaurant parking lot getting into his car. He specifically noted that it sounded like a MedLink medical helicopter, which is a neighboring flight service and reported that it seemed to be traveling at a high rate of speed and was flying low. He specifically recalled to the investigators thinking that it was not going to clear the bluffs. A second witness contacted the La Crosse County Sheriff's Office all on their own just a few minutes later at 2240 and stated that he heard a helicopter flying overhead when the sound of the engine disappeared followed by a loud crashing sound. It was at this time that local authorities initiated a search, but it was not until 2304 24 minutes later, the air methods notified local authorities that the helicopter was indeed missing. But no one knew where to search or where the helicopter was because the GPS tracking had stopped for some reason. Now, the fire department report for this search and rescue mission is absolutely nuts. And I applaud the hard work and ingenuity that all of these responders put in during the early morning hours of May 11th, 2008. The search area was extremely remote and was located amongst what the local communities call the bluffs surrounding La Crosse. These bluffs were originally created from the Mississippi River as it cut through the Mississippi River Valley and carved out the land, eventually leaving many steep cliff ridges. There are many bluffs that surround La Crosse, most of which are about five or 600 feet above the ground and about 1,000 to 1,200 feet above sea level. The searchers attempted to draw a line that followed east-southeast from La Crosse Airport and cross-reference that pathway with what the witnesses heard and saw. They also attempted to locate the aircraft by tracking the GPS data from the cell phones of the MedFlight crew members. But this was way back in 2008, like a million years ago, right? When cell phone GPS was in its absolute infancy and the GPS location was not really easy to obtain like it is today. Dispatchers would repeatedly call all three of the cell phones without an answer and then leave voicemails. But the only way for a GPS location to be provided at the time from the cell provider, which was US Cellular, was if there was an outbound call from one of the cell phones or every two to four hours. And so it wasn't until 0200 that morning that US Cellular finally advised that they did get a location on the north side of one of their towers, but searchers were still unsuccessful. Then another two hours goes by and they did get a more precise location, which did help rescuers and the helicopter was finally found at 0826 hours that morning. Sadly, all three of the crew members died in this accident. Now, investigators could easily tell that the helicopter impacted the very top of the trees on the top of the ridgeline of this bluff. The right landing skid impacted the trees all the way at the top of the bluff and was ripped off. The main wreckage then came to rest on a descending hillside downhill from the ridgeline, with the main wreckage coming to rest about 600 feet further down from the initial impact. In other words, the helicopter was flying along and its right landing skid impacted the tops of the trees at the very top of the ridgeline 
ripped it off, causing the helicopter to crash 600 feet further down the same pathway. While analyzing the wreckage, investigators also found that the instrument panel that has all of the gauges and switches had been completely dislodged from its normal position in the cockpit. Upon closer inspection, they took a deeper look at these switches that you see here, which control the number one and number two engines, otherwise known as the left and right engines. These engine control switches have three positions and a switch lock. The bottom position is off, the middle position is idle, and the top position is flight. In really basic terms, the pilot would lift the switch to idle during engine start, and then once the engines are within the specified parameters, he would then move the switch to flight and flip the switch lock over. But on early model EC-135s, this switch lock only locked out the ability to move the switch to the off position, not to the idle position. When investigators first analyzed this instrument panel, while still at the accident site, they found that the engine number one switch was in the idle position and not in the flight position where it was supposed to be. So, seems pretty clear that this might be the culprit, right? Well, not so fast. You see, the EC-135 is a twin-engine aircraft with a FADEC control system, which is basically a very advanced computer system that manages the power and fuel and efficiency of the turboshaft engines. So these engines and their respective computer control units were sent off to be analyzed by the engine manufacturer, Turbomecha. These investigators can tell very easily by just visual inspection that both of these engines had internal damage that was consistent with the blade still turning at the time of impact. Now, now, turbine engines have a limit to how fast they can spin before they eventually grenade and blow up. The FADEC system basically controls how fast the engine should spin based upon how much torque the engines are spinning against, which in most turboshaft helicopters comes by way of the dry shafts that come out of the engines and go to the transmission. If the resistance or torque that the engine has to create power against suddenly disappears, then the engine will start to overspeed and spin way too fast, which like I said will eventually lead to that engine being damaged and blowing up. So in a twin engine helicopter, the FADEC system will shut down that engine if the speed reaches a threshold of 114%, knowing that the other engine is there to provide power. But what if the other engine also loses torque? Well, the FADEC system will certainly not shut down both of the engines, so the other engine is actually free to overspeed itself a little bit, but then has a mechanical safeguard, which on these turbomecha engines means that once the engine gets to 147%, the actual power turbine blade themselves will literally shed away from the engine in order to protect against the entire engine blowing up in some type of catastrophic failure. So when they looked at the actual computer memory and data from this crash, they found that even though this switch on the instrument panel showed that engine number one was at an idle, it was actually in the flight position for both engines at the actual time of impact. How do we know this? Because the memory and data show that both engines simultaneously experienced an overspeed event with the number two engine experiencing the event just a millisecond before engine number one. At the exact same moment, both engines showed that they had very low torque values, which means that the transmission had become disconnected from the engine simultaneously when the aircraft impacted the ground. Once the helicopter impacted the ground, the transmission was 
slammed forward and disconnected from both engine drive shafts, lowering their torque values, causing them to overspeed. And since engine number two experienced the overspeed to 114% first, it was immediately shut down, which caused engine number one to overspeed to 147%, causing it to shed its power turbine blades and also shut down, which is exactly how both engines were designed to perform. Now, you go back 45 seconds and watch and listen to that one again. But wait, then how did this switch on the instrument panel end up in the idle position? Well, unknown at the time of the accident, at least to the NTSB and air methods, was Eurocopter had been experiencing problems with the function of this switch. You see, this switch is a three position switch where you actually have to pull on the switch out from the instrument panel in order to release a small triangular protrusion from the bottom of the switching lever that fits into a little groove. You pull the switch out, move it to the desired position, and then let it go, and the little protrusion will sort of lock and hold the switch lever in place. But the problem is, this little triangular protrusion and the groove that it fits into tend to get worn out by not being properly operated and not pulling out the lever all the way. When a pilot moves this switch up or down without pulling the lever out all the way, the groove gets worn down and as Eurocopter says, under these circumstances, a secure and exact positioning of the switch lever cannot be ensured. So Eurocopter issued a service bulletin two years after this crash that provides two fixes for this problem. One, it replaces the switch with a sturdier design that won't get worn down as easily. And two, the little red switch lock, which normally would have locked out just the off position, is now double in size and locks out both the off and idle positions. Now, Air Methods, as is their right, also did their very own investigation, which was quite interesting and has some very controversial points. Now, one of the engine ECUs was severely damaged in this accident and was found to have a single bent pin in one of the connectors. This pin just happened to also be the same pin that controls the overspeed 30-second indication lamp in the cockpit, which would illuminate if one of the engines was shut down. But there is obviously some discrepancy with this pin because Turbomeca first stated that this pin controls the training mode lamp on the instrument panel, yet the Air Methods report says that this was a mistake and Turbomeca then retracted that statement and acknowledged that it was actually for the OEI overspeed indicator. But I don't think that it really matters because it seems very apparent that the pin was most likely damaged when it was originally installed. The ECU was only installed once on this aircraft and that was nearly 516 hours ago when it was brand new. The trauma from this accident wouldn't have caused a single pin to be bent like this, especially since there was no trauma or damage to the outside of the connector. And since this pin was probably bent the entire time this aircraft had been in service, Turbomeca concluded that the pin, quote, presented no flight or performance issues for the duration of time accumulated. Now, remember the three witnesses we talked about? Air methods seem to make every attempt in their investigation to completely discount those three witness accounts, including the fuel man and both of the people who heard the helicopter just before it crashed. They literally put the words witness into quotation marks, which seems to insinuate that they are somehow unreliable or not really a witness. Just because the witness gave an account does not mean that the investigators took their account as the gospel. As with any investigation, these witnesses had some pieces of evidence 
albeit it was witness testimony, but that evidence still needs to be considered along with all of the other evidence in forensics. Now, when MedFlight worked with CJ on the Augusta 109s, they did normally have a medical crew member sit up front with them when they were not patient loaded. And this certainly does aid in calling out obstructions for hazards. For some reason, the UW med crew opted to not sit up front in these EC-135s. I was unable to find a reason for this decision, but nonetheless, it was their decision. In the Air Methods report, they stated, quote, the medical crew on the accident flight consisted of a doctor and a flight nurse both of whom were employees of the University of Wisconsin hospital system. Both medical crew members were seated in the rear of the aircraft, although a second pilot seat was available had they chosen to use it. Air Methods procedures did not prohibit medical crew members from using a pilot seat, but as a matter of practice, the University of Wisconsin hospital medical crew members did not choose to use the vacant pilot seat. I don't know, this just seems to come across as bad form to me. I see no logic in placing a single shred of blame on the flight physician or the flight nurse of this accident for choosing to sit in the rear of the aircraft. 98% of medical helicopters across the United States do not have a medical crew member sitting up front. Now, Air Methods quotes that it was their policy, and still is, for everyone on board the aircraft to be wearing a helmet. But UW Health clearly had a policy that helmets were not required, and many of the physicians did not wear them. In this accident, neither the physician nor the nurse were wearing their helmets. And before anyone says that a helmet would not have helped, there is a story coming up later this year that shows three crew members on board an air ambulance with one not wearing a helmet where the helicopter then crashes on takeoff, leaving the one person that wasn't wearing a helmet to suffer from a career-ending traumatic brain injury. Should they have been wearing helmets? Yes, they should have. It was Air Method's policy, and I have no idea why the hospital would have allowed them to not wear a helmet. Air Method goes on to defend their decision to withhold the IFR proficiency check for Pilot Steve. They originally stated that the reason for not doing the IFR proficiency check was weather-related and needed to be rescheduled. But in a post-accident interview, one of the other pilots was quoted as saying that there was no IFR proficiency checks completed because Air Methods, who used their own check airmen, did not have any check airmen available. I mean, Air Methods certainly could have sought out other check airmen directly from the FAA and is not forced to use their own employees to do these check rides. Sounds to me like it was simply a matter of Air Methods practice that if they did not have one of their own check airmen available, that they would simply delay the check ride. Even though the weather reporting was pretty shoddy, Air Methods contends that the weather was marginal VFR or VFR and did not play an issue in this accident. Yet there was a pilot from a neighboring HEM service called Medlink that I mentioned earlier who gave a statement that he saw fog at the top of the bluffs east of La Crosse, which is just where this helicopter was flying, right before the accident occurred. And another neighboring service from the Mayo Clinic also gave a detailed account that they visibly saw fog while returning to base that they turned down three flights for weather and aborted a fourth all during the hours surrounding the accident time. And finally, Air Methods posits that the pilot was not flying level and must have been descending and that he must have been doing so because he was distracted by something on his instrument panel, presumably caused by the damaged pin or that selector switch being in idle. So, 
What was Air Method's probable cause for this crash? They say that the probable cause of this accident was a collision with trees in darkness while distracted and responding to an unknown anomalous in-flight event. Now, this seems eerily similar to the far-fetched theories posited by another HEM service just a few years ago, and I'm not sure it added at all to the investigation. Any and all investigations can easily end up with pieces of evidence that are either unexplained or are simply not a factor in the outcome of the incident. Air Method seemed 100% committed to the fact that this pin must have caused an instrument panel light to illuminate that then distracted the pilot, causing him to try and do an emergency landing and then accidentally flying the helicopter into the bluffs. But there is zero evidence to support that, only conjecture and speculation. I don't know why that engine selector switch was in the idle position, but given the fact that it was not locked out and it is known by Eurocopter that the switch screws wear out, it seems more likely that a massive impact of, say, a helicopter slamming into a bluff at 120 miles per hour could easily move that switch down, especially since the computer sensed it was in the flight position at the actual moment of impact. Now remember, TurboMecha also did their own investigation and they did not offer conclusions to the cause of the crash, but only that it was not the engines that caused the accident. The manufacturer, Eurocopter, also completed an investigation and found that the pilot was at fault for not maintaining sufficient altitude during flight. The pilot's poor decision to continue a flight into deteriorating weather conditions at night and the fact that the pilot was not current in his instrument proficiency. Well, where did the NTSB end up with their probable cause? Well, they found that the probable cause of this accident to be the pilot's failure to maintain clearance from trees along the top of a ridgeline due to inadequate pre-flight planning, insufficient altitude, and the lack of a helicopter terrain awareness and warning system. In other words, during the pre-flight for this return trip home, the pilot should have included the maximum elevation figures, which for the La Crosse area is 2,200 feet, or at least it was at the time. This means that so long as he flies at 2,200 feet, he will clear all known obstructions such as buildings, towers, and terrain. And even though air methods stated that weather was not an issue, the NTSB meteorological report showed that the cloud ceilings were scattered around just over 2,000 feet, giving the pilot just 831 feet of margin between the cloud ceilings and the tops of the bluffs. So what happened? Pilot Steve took off and he very well may or may not have known what the maximum elevation figures were, but he found himself getting closed in from the top with clouds, pushing him down and eventually having to fly as low as possible so he could continue to see out the front of the aircraft since he was not allowed to fly IFR since his proficiency check was never scheduled by air methods. In other words, he was scud running trying to make it over the highest elevation point while still trying to stay below the clouds. You know, the same exact situation just occurred a few months ago with the Life Force incident in North Carolina. In the Life Force case, the pilot even knew that the maximum elevation obstructions was 6,100 feet and for some reason still chose to set his autopilot at 5,500 feet. Luckily, in that case, this pilot looked up at the very last moment, saw the trees approaching, and pulled up just in time for the tail boom to strike the very tops of the trees, damaging his fenestron tail, causing him to lose tail rotor effectiveness, but somehow he still managed to get the aircraft on the ground with no fatality. But wait. 
As if there wasn't enough contention in this MedFlight accident, one of the NTSB board members for this investigation wrote a scathing letter to the board dissenting from the majority opinion. Board member Robert Sumwalt, who later became the chairman of the NTSB, believed very strongly that there was a systemic problem at play here with air methods. Sumwalt notes that the pilot was IFR current with CJ, but was not allowed to maintain his IFR currency due to a lack of air methods training resources and that, quote, given that his helicopter was IFR equipped, it is likely that had the pilot not been restricted to VFR operations, he would have filed IFR instead of scud running beneath the clouds. Sumwalt's proposed and amended probable cause would have read as the same as what the NTSB mentioned, but also that contributing to the accident was the failure of air methods to ensure that the accident pilot was current and qualified for instrument flight rules operations, which placed the pilot in the position of flying at a low altitude once he encountered lower than expected clouds. You know, since this accident, many changes have occurred in the industry as well as at UW Health. Night vision goggles are almost universal across HEMS in the United States, now with most agencies supplying them for all crew members. HTAWS is now a federal requirement on all air ambulances and has undoubtedly prevented many similar crashes from occurring. UW Health is no longer affiliated with air methods and has now partnered with Metro Aviation since 2019 for their pilots, aircraft, and mechanics. Helmets are now used by all MedFlight crew members and someone from the medical crew always sits up front when they do not have a patient on board. And all new EC-135s across the world come with an improved engine control switch. Now this accident occurred 15 years ago now. Every agency mentioned in this story, from CJ to Air Methods to UW Health to Metro Aviation, are filled with good people who just want to make a difference in people's lives and help people and save people, and they all want to do it as safely as possible. But at the same time, we must learn from the tragedies of the past. And when accidents do occur, we must stay focused on the task at hand, which is working together to investigate the accident learning from the actual cause, and using that newfound knowledge to be safer in the future. This is how we all get better. Many interviews were completed for this investigation, and it seems very clear to me that between air methods and MedFlight that there was a great relationship and that everyone felt safe and never felt an organizational pressure to fly, especially in bad weather. But even the most competent and most experienced pilots are at risk for becoming complacent and making poor decisions. The sentiment of this story, a pilot that did make a poor decision to fly into deteriorating weather, then finding himself getting closed in from the top by the clouds and the bottom by the terrain and scud running his way home, unfortunately is nothing new and is not unheard of. The only difference in this case is the coincidental occurrence of that engine number one switch moving to the idle position after the crash and the bent pin on the ECU connector, both of which obviously threw in some forensic curveballs. But in the end, it clearly makes sense why both of those items occurred and that most likely neither of them had anything to do with causing this accident. What would have prevented this crash? Well, HTAWS certainly would have alerted the pilot to the bluffs, but even then he may have found himself in inadvertent instrument conditions as he would have had to climb to get over the bluffs and may have ended up in the clouds, which also would have been an emergency. But 
Had there been two pilots on board, this flight probably never would have occurred in the first place. Thank you all so much for watching. If you have a story that you want me to cover, please let me know in the comments. I read them all, even the ones making fun of my stupid earrings and my tattoos. Feel free to smash that super thanks button or visit the website where you can take some nerdy classes or buy some merch. Please stay safe, look out for one another, and I will see you on the next episode.